to bring you the truth about cannabis and marijuana law reform. I smoke pot and I like it a lot. The Russ Belleville Show, the voice of the marijuana nation. It's like marijuana ought to be legalized. Good people smoke marijuana. Now, here's your host, Radical Russ Belleville. Good day, tokers and toquettes and non-toking lovers of liberty. It is Monday, April 3rd, 2017, and it's got to be 420 somewhere in the world. It's episode 918, and coming up on today's show, in the news, Dallas Cowboys owner Jerry Jones calls on the NFL to end its ban on cannabis use by players. In our Cannabis Focus, we take a look at the last eight states with absolute marijuana prohibition. In our drug war data mining, we find out that the kids in Washington state aren't using more marijuana after legalization. In our Cannabis Q&A, we get Dr. Mitch's take on recent developments in the national discussion of the opiate epidemic. And in our activist agenda, I sat down with journalist Angela Baca to learn about how Mormon families in Utah are getting their marijuana. Then in hour two, we check out footage of President Trump, Governor Christie, and Attorney General Sessions listening to a woman blame her son's opiate overdose death on the gateway theory. Covering the latest headlines in consumer cannabis medical marijuana, and industrial hemp. Now your marijuana headlines in 4 minutes and 20 seconds. This is Cannabis News. This is your Cannabis Headline News for Monday, April 3rd, 2017. The owner of the Dallas Cowboys said in a recent meeting of NFL owners that the league should, quote, drop its prohibition on marijuana use, end quote, according to Pro Football Talk's Mike Florio. While recreational marijuana use is legal in eight states plus D.C. and medical marijuana is legal in about 20 more, NFL players are banned from using the drug for any purposes under the existing collective bargaining agreement, which expires in 2020. Under that agreement, players who test positive for marijuana must enter a sub substance abuse program. Subsequent violations lead to fines, 10-game suspensions, and ultimately banishment from the league. Former NFL players have been increasingly vocal in their criticism of the ban in recent years, saying that medical marijuana is a safe alternative to the powerful prescription opiates routinely prescribed to NFL players for pain. The West Virginia Republican Party is asking its members in the House of Delegates to vote no on a bill up for a second reading today that would permit the use of marijuana for medicinal purposes in the state. The letter, which is from the West Virginia Republican Platform Committee and addressed to West Virginia House Republican members, notes that the state party's 2016 platform states, quote, We support those who are practicing drug abuse prevention efforts at the local and state levels and oppose the normalization, legalization, or decriminalization of any illicit drugs, end quote. Senate Bill 386, which would create a West Virginia Medical Cannabis Commission to oversee medical marijuana regulation in the state, is on second reading in the House of Delegates today. Debate on the bill is likely to come this evening. During second readings, lawmakers can propose amendments to the bills. California legislators have taken a page from laws establishing sanctuary cities for immigrants to create a measure aimed at protecting marijuana from a federal crackdown. Similar to laws shielding undocumented immigrants, the recently introduced Assembly Bill 1578 would bar cooperation by police in the state with federal authorities seeking to bust marijuana growers and sellers operating legally under California law. The proposed legislation would prohibit state and local agencies, unless served with a court order, from using local money, facilities, or personnel 
personnel to assist a federal agency to, quote, investigate, detain, report, or arrest, end quote, any person for commercial or non-commercial marijuana or medical cannabis activity that is authorized by law in the state of California and transferring an individual to federal law enforcement authorities for purposes of marijuana enforcement. California authorities would also be barred from responding to requests by federal authorities for the personal information of anyone issued state licenses for a marijuana operation. A kidney patient in Maine was taken off a transplant wait list for using medical marijuana, so he is now fighting to prevent hospitals in the state from doing to others what was done to him. Gary Godfrey has Alport syndrome, a hereditary disease which causes renal failure at a young age. He says it also causes debilitating pain, nausea, and anxiety. To cope, Godfrey began using medical marijuana. Godfrey needs a new kidney, so he says he was put on Maine Medical Center's transplant list in 2003. In 2010, the hospital adopted a new policy. Quote, I was informed that they changed their policy that you can no longer use marijuana. I was removed from the list, end quote, Godfrey said. Maine Medical Center spokesman Clay Holtzman said he would not comment on Godfrey's case, but in a March 28th statement, he said that there were medical reasons for keeping marijuana users off transplant lists, quote, due to the risk of an invasive fungal infection known as aspergillosis, the statement read in part. The Massachusetts Department of Agricultural Resources will need extra money to regulate the use of pesticides for growing marijuana, Agricultural Commissioner John LeBeau said Monday. LeBeau said he does not yet know exactly how much money he will need, but he suggested that recreational marijuana could be a $200 million agricultural industry, potentially representing almost half of Massachusetts' agricultural economy. Colorado's Agriculture Department requested a $3 million budget boost to hire 14 new staff, including inspectors, enforcement staff, an educator, and a lab technician to regulate marijuana growing in that state. LeBeau said his staff is talking to agricultural officials in other states to see if Massachusetts can benefit from their work, for example, by getting lists of appropriate pesticides that were generated in Colorado or Oregon, but there may still need to be a Massachusetts-specific approval process. This has been your Cannabis Headline News for Monday, April 3rd, 2017, I'm Russ Belville. In the interest of fair and balanced journalism, the Russ Belville Show presents the anti-drug public service announcement of the day. Chance you're not smoking poison? Zero. Chance sex for drugs is a fair trade? Zero. Zero. Chance you won't lose your soul? Zero. Chance your life will be the only one ruined? Zero. Zero meth. This has been the Russ Belleville Show's anti-drug public service announcement of the day. Exclusively on RadicalRust.com. Russ Belville Show is proudly sponsored by the Marijuana Business Association. The MJBA, called by NBC News the Cannabis Chamber of Commerce, is the fastest-growing business association in the fastest-growing industry in America. I've been working with the MJBA for years, and I personally invite you to join the MJBA. MJBA also publishes the popular MJ Headline News on Facebook and the MJNewsNetwork.com and Marijuana Channel 1 on YouTube. Visit MJBA.net for more details. 
You're listening to the Russ Belleville Show. Uh, Americans are uh, sick and tired of uh, the cost of the war on drugs. You can find Radical Russ online everywhere. Warning. Hits taken on this show are larger than they appear. Do not try this at home. These people are professionals. Or at least they pay me to say that. Illegal! A public service message from the Russ Belleville Show. The world of cannabis is evolving at a frenetic pace. The Russ Belleville Show gets behind the headlines to take a deeper look at breaking news in our Cannabis Focus. Today in our Cannabis Focus, we take a look at the last eight states racing to be the only one with absolute marijuana prohibition. When we last checked in on the United States of America, it was comprised of eight states and D.C. that had legalized adult use and medical use marijuana. Then there are another 20 states that have legalized medical use marijuana and another 14 that have legalized medical use cannabidiol oil, leaving us just eight states, Alabama, Idaho, Indiana, Kansas, Louisiana, Nebraska, South Dakota, and West Virginia that punish any person who has any form of any marijuana for any reason. Now, which one of these hateful eight states will be the last U.S. state to stand firm on what I call absolute marijuana prohibition? Well, at the rate the state legislatures are taking up the issue of medical use marijuana, we may not have that long to find out. In March of 2014, Utah became the first state to pass a law allowing children with severe epilepsy to use a low-THC cannabidiol oil. Alabama was the second state to do so just two weeks later on April 1st, 2014, about three years ago. And then a cascade of other states followed, mostly throughout the Old South, plus Wisconsin, Iowa, Wyoming, and Utah. And since then, Alabama is frequently referred to as one of the CBD states that allow parents to acquire cannabidiol oil somewhere out of state, like Colorado, and then bring it back without fear of prosecution. But the cannabidiol states are a lot like the medical marijuana states where there are significant differences that often get glossed over. You may have seen the John Oliver special last night where he went into a a full segment on the insanity of marijuana laws. And one map that he placed up on the screen featured the United States with the 44 states that have medical marijuana, legal marijuana, or a CBD law, leaving only six states, Idaho, uh, Kansas, Nebraska, South Dakota, West Virginia, and Indiana, as uncolored. And, And the idea was that these are the six states remaining that have no uh, sort of marijuana reform. But that's misleading because the legalization that exists in Oregon is quite different than the legalization that exists in Washington State, where you can still get busted for growing a plant. The medical marijuana that exists in a place like Michigan is far different than the medical marijuana that exists in a place like Ohio, where they can't get uh, the plant. They can't smoke it. The 
CBD laws that we have are just like this, where the CBD laws are different from one state to the other that significantly impact how effective those laws are. For example, Alabama's law states that, quote, a prescription for the possession or use of cannabidiol CBD as authorized by this act shall be provided exclusively by the University of Alabama at Birmingham Department for a debilitating epileptic condition. End quote. Well, prescription is the problem. That's the word that killed medical marijuana laws in five states from 1979 to 1991. Doctors' prescriptions fall under federal law. And since marijuana is a Schedule I controlled substance, no physician can write such a prescription. That's why the states that recognize medical use marijuana and cannabidiol rely on the word recommendation. So, I think it is improper to categorize Alabama as a CBD state when no patient possessing CBD in Alabama is is protected because they couldn't have possibly gotten a prescription from a doctor for that substance under the law. So, I even think the John Oliver map was wrong that Alabama shouldn't have been colored in that map either. And South Dakota, well, they've approved a CBD oil if it has a barcode. They made the mistake on March 17th last month when their governor signed a law that allows patients to possess CBD oil once it has been approved by the FDA. Well, of course, the FDA has not recognized CBD yet, so there is no FDA-approved CBD for patients to possess. So they shouldn't get the benefit of being called a CBD state either. Uh, These kind of laws, they're not helping anybody right now. They're just better, just barely better than nothing, because at least they would allow in-state use of a prescribable cannabidiol product once those come online, like GW Pharmaceuticals Epidiolex, once it gets FDA approval, they won't have to wait for the state to change the code. Boom, South Dakota, they can use it immediately. And there are four other CBD states, Mississippi, South Carolina, North Carolina, and Kentucky, that tie the CBD oil acquisition only through a study at a state university. So that's not going to help anybody that brought the CBD oil in from Colorado, is it? To me, there's two different types of CBD states, one that allow you to possess cannabidiol no matter where you got it, and the other kind that tie it to the FDA or a prescription or a university trial, which makes them largely inoperable. And we do have uh, three states recently, uh, Texas and Missouri and Virginia, that have passed laws to begin the actual cultivation and processing of CBD oil so people don't have to go out of state to get it. But South Dakota is one of the 24 states that have initiative power, so the people might decide this instead rather than the legislature. The activists have submitted proposals for both a medical use and an adult use marijuana initiative. And in South Dakota, you only need about 18,000 signatures to make the ballot. And maybe the third time will be the charm because South Dakota has voted down medical marijuana in 2006 and 2010. But in Louisiana, (laughs) the fourth and the fifth times have not been the charm. In 1978, Louisiana passed a medical marijuana law But they failed to mandate that the state's health department create any rules for the program, so it didn't. 
1991, Louisiana amended the medical marijuana law to order the health department to promulgate some rules. And it was then that they noticed they had made the mistake of using the word prescription in their law after Virginia, New Hampshire, Connecticut, and Wisconsin had already made that mistake from 1979 to 1988. So then in 2015, <laughs> right? So 13 years before they fix the uh, health department issue now from 91 to 2015, another 14 years or 20, is that 24 years? Louisiana passes a new medical marijuana law that sets up dispensaries and cultivation and declares that marijuana would only be available in non-smokable forms, but they didn't fix the problem of the word prescription. So that new law was dead on arrival. Then last May, Governor Bell Edwards corrected that mistake, the 2015 mistake, with a new law that changes prescription to recommendation and mandates that the state cultivate cannabis through two state universities. But that's what they realized. That's when they realized that they allowed doctors to recommend marijuana. They allowed universities to cultivate cannabis, but they did nothing to protect the patients, distributors, and cultivators from any criminal prosecution. So in August... Louisiana passed another bill that protects the patients and leaves them with no distributors or cultivators who have any protection to provide for them without threat of prosecution. <laughs> so what? At this rate, uh, Louisiana might finally pass a workable medical cannabis legislation by what? 2030? <laughs> Jeez. But West Virginia, now this is pretty surprising. Over in West Virginia, the proposal to legalize medical marijuana in a state ravaged by the opiate epidemic is flying through the legislature. The bill passed the Senate, and in a rare move, the House delegates voted last week, 54 to 40, with six abstentions, to move the bill straight to the floor for reading, and they bypassed the usual committee process. The House held their first reading yesterday, and they're holding their second reading tonight. We told you about the West Virginia Republicans passing out a letter telling them to vote no on that. This bill would create a dispensary system complete with 15 licensed growers. It would also be the first medical marijuana bill passed by a legislature in over a decade that allows patients to cultivate their own cannabis plants. Combined with the qualifying condition list that includes pain, nausea, seizures, spasms, cachexia, cancer, and AIDS, plus anxiety, PTSD, and hospice care, West Virginia could soon have the best medical marijuana law in the Eastern time zone. Now, Kansas, they've passed a CBD oil out of one of their Senate committees, but it's got some vague language in their bill about non-intoxicating cannabinoid medicines, but it doesn't go on to define what those are. Indiana is neck and neck with Kansas. Their house unanimously passed a bill back in February. It cleared a Senate committee last week. This one does define cannabidiol oil as less than 0.3% THC, greater than 5% CBD. Nebraska has a medical marijuana bill that was filed, but uh, seems to be kind of stuck in a judiciary committee right now. It's another non-smoked cannabis one. Of all the remaining states that have absolute marijuana prohibition, only Idaho is the state that had absolutely no bills whatsoever to move forward to reform their marijuana laws. And of course, in 2015, Idaho is infamous for passing a CBD bill that the governor then vetoed. In 2013, infamous for their Senate declaring that they shall never legalize marijuana for any purpose whatsoever. 
But this is a state where they do pass a law to allow drivers who can conceal carry a gun nearly everywhere and ride a motorcycle without a helmet to pass legally other cars on the freeway at 15 miles per hour faster than the speed limit. I don't see you doing any better in the booty department. Is that crazy? In Idaho, some of the speed limits are 80 miles an hour. You can ride your motorcycle without a helmet and pass someone at 15 miles an hour faster. So you can go 95 on the freeway without a helmet in Idaho. But we couldn't pass the CBD bill because we're worried about the people. We're worried about the safety and the health of the people. Any hope for Idaho lies with an initiative, folks. Hey everybody, it's Radical Russ here from 420 Radio, inviting you to be like me and get your ink done at Lucky Horseshoe Tattoo, Fort Worth's most female-friendly, clean, sterile, awesome tattoo shop. Thomas and his crew are true artists who can design you a custom piece or use a design you bring in. Lucky Horseshoe Tattoo also offers all styles of tattooing as well as piercings and all-around fun. In the DFW area, stop by Lucky Horseshoe Tattoo and tell them Radical Russ sent you. Trust me, it'll feel awesome. The Russ Belleville Show, where the truth about marijuana gets more than a minute to speak. Normal stands for responsible adult cannabis use. If cannabis use is causing problems in your life, consider taking a break or seeking medical assistance. Consider ceasing cannabis use if you have a family history of mental illness. Don't drive or operate heavy machinery while impaired by cannabis use. Cannabis use is not without risks, even though the risks may be far less than those posed by legal drugs. Reason, compassion, evidence truth, and logic on our side. It's even easier when researchers catalog it all for us. Learn how to gather the facts on marijuana use, arrests, seizures, rehabs, drug tests, and more on this edition of Drug War Data Mining. Today in the Drug War Data Mines, we return to the number one objection of marijuana prohibitionists to the idea of states legalizing the adult use of cannabis. Well, today, the 2016 Washington State Healthy Youth Survey has been released, and I have their data brief right in front of me for marijuana. You can look at it, too. It's at askhys.net if you'd like to look it up. I'll just read from the brief. In fall 2016, over 230,000 students participated in the Healthy Youth Survey. Over 1,000 schools administered the survey, representing all 39 Washington counties and 236 school districts. Rates of teen marijuana use have remained steady despite the changing landscape. In 2016, 6% of 8th graders, 17% of 10th graders, and 26% of 12th graders reported past 30-day marijuana use. About half of those who used marijuana in the past month indicated they used on 6 or more days, 41% of 8th graders, 45% of 10th graders, and 52% of 12th graders. But again, let's reiterate, rates of teen marijuana use have remained steady despite the changing landscape. The majority of current marijuana users, about two-thirds of 8th and three-quarters of 10th and... 12th graders usually smoke marijuana, a much smaller percentage reported usually eating, drinking, or vaping marijuana. There was a decline in 2014 in 12th grade current users who usually vaporized it from 7% to 5%. Now, the perceived ease of obtaining marijuana remained stable at 8th and 12th grade, 
or declined 10th grade between 2014 and 2016. Hmm. We legalized marijuana in Washington State. We put it in adults-only stores that check IDs. And the 8th and 12th graders say it's still just as easy or hard to get marijuana. It didn't really change. The 10th graders said it was harder. The 2016 10th graders, 27% of them said it's very easy to obtain marijuana. In 2014, that was 32%. It got harder for high school sophomores. The 8th and 12th graders, about 40% of the 12th graders say it's very easy to get. Now, where teens obtained marijuana may be changing according to the report. Of those who obtained marijuana in the past month, the percentage buying it at a store decreased from 2014 to 2016 among 8th graders and 10th graders. Among 12th graders who obtained marijuana, the percentage getting it from friends decreased 63 to 57, and giving money to someone else to purchase it increased 16 to 19%. All right, so among the younger kids, fewer of them are able to get it through stores. Hmm. Among the 12th graders, now again, a 12th grader, you're talking about someone that's 17 years old, possibly 18 years old, they're giving money to people to buy it from the legal stores. That did increase. But here's something to consider. Where else were kids getting their marijuana? From their own grows or from dealers? Marijuana of dubious uh, purity and dubious content. So at least if these 12th graders, about one in five, are giving a straw purchaser money to buy marijuana for them, at least the marijuana they're getting is tested and guaranteed. Now, another fact from the Washington Healthy Youth Survey, declining perceived risk of regular marijuana use among 8th graders should be carefully monitored. The percentage of 8th graders perceiving great risk in regular marijuana use fell from 53% in 2014 to 48% in 2016. Okay, they also say many teens perceive little risk of marijuana use. In 2016, one in five eighth graders, one in three tenth graders, and almost half of twelfth graders perceived no or slight risk to regular use. But here's an interesting thing. That fact doesn't live in a vacuum. From 2014 to 2016, fewer kids think think it's risky. Fewer kids see a problem with using marijuana, and yet, what was that headline at the top? Rates of teen marijuana use have remained steady despite the changing landscape. So even though the kids are finding less risk in it, that's not leading them to take it up. Now, they do have a concerning point here. Too many teens are driving after using marijuana. 51% of the 12th graders who reported using marijuana in the past 30 days reported driving within three hours of using marijuana at least once in the past 30 days. All right, wait a minute. Now, that's not fair. No, that's not fair. They're not crashing their cars because they've smoked marijuana within the past three hours before they drove. The thing I'm concerned about for these 12th graders is Washington State has a 5 nanogram per se DUID and zero tolerance for people under the age of 21. Kids, you're just taking an unnecessary risk if you're getting behind the wheel within three hours of driving. Not that I'm too scared of you wrecking into people. I'm scared of you getting busted. And finally, last point, state, local, and community prevention efforts are crucial for addressing youth marijuana use. 
they lead of leave a few uh, websites for you. StartTalkingNow.org and learn about marijuana. Wa like Washington. org. You can find all this, all their fact sheets at AskHYS.net. Some other quick facts from this. Uh, pre-recorded from a couple of weeks ago when the Washington Healthy Youth Survey came out. It was a slow data day today, folks. So I thought we'd just go back to some good data from a couple weeks ago. Now, coming up next, we've got Dr. Mitch joining us live and a whole bunch to talk about when it comes to the opiate crisis here in America. Plus, in hour two, we've got a clip for us to observe of Jeff Sessions, Chris Christie, and President Trump listening to a woman describe her son's opiate overdose death and blame it on the gateway drug marijuana. This is the Russ Belleville Show on CannabisRadio.com. Herb Thrasher from the Herb Thrasher Flower Hour. Now get ready for Herb Age Designs for the proud cannabis consumer. Herb Age Designs. Lifestyle gear for the 420 friendly. Herb Age Designs. We've got Frisbee golf discs and durable hemp gear. Herb Age Designs. We've got shot glasses, drinking glasses, coffee mugs, and beer cozies. Check us out on Facebook and online at HerbAgeDesigns.com and follow Herb Age and Herb Thrasher on Twitter. You're not high. You're listening to the Russ Belleville Show. I smell pot coming from over here and grilled onions from over there. Two of my favorite smells ever. Both those onions and that pot smell really good up here, you know. All right. Well, maybe you're high, too. Warning. Hits taken on this show are larger than they appear. Do not try this at home. These people are professionals. (coughs) Or at least they aim you. Yes, I cannabis. A public service message from the Russ Belleville Show. It's time for the Russ Belleville Show's Cannabis Q&A with Dr. Mitch Earlywine. Dr. Earlywine is a professor of psychology at the State University of New York at Albany and a leading author and researcher on cannabinoids and health who pins the Ask Dr. Mitch column for High Times Magazine. Welcome back, everybody. Time for our Cannabis Q&A with Dr. Mitch. How are you doing, Dr. Mitch? Crazy day. How are you? I'm doing just fine. And uh, speaking of crazy, there's all sorts of things for us to go over today uh, with regards to the opiate epidemic. This is the uh, the big talk of the town in Washington, D.C., with uh, the uh, President Trump putting together a opiate addiction uh, crisis team composed of Governor Chris Christie, Attorney General Jeff Sessions, former Attorney General of Florida Pam Bondi, uh, Governor Charlie Baker out of Massachusetts, I mean, uh, this is an all-star lineup, Dr. Mitch. What do you think about this opiate uh, task force? I would have rather he just threw a dart at a map. <laughs> 
not not because if you had a random sample of people, they couldn't be worse than this. Oh my God, Jeff Sessions, Chris Christie, are you kidding me? Ah, <laughs> no, I'm pretty disappointed. Not not uh, exactly who we'd uh, want to see. The uh, the first uh, bit on this that I wanted to discuss has to do with a CBS News report uh, a, where they spoke with the DEA chief uh, Chuck Rosenberg, and the quote they get out of this is that opioids quote it scares the hell out of me and they're making a big scare about the opiate epidemic it reminds me of how in the 1980s there was the big scare about crack and crack babies and that helped to depress support for marijuana reform what do you make of the uh, dea heads comments and do you think it'll have a similar chilling effect like it did in the 80s i gotta admit i think of the opiates as uh less alarming than crack they're hitting the white people, though, and the wealthy people, so ooh, we better be super scared. I don't think the stats are off the way some of the crack baby stats were hitting the press in the 80s, but I, I got to admit, uh, call me paranoid stoner, I do think that the alarm about this, coupled with this nonsense we're hearing about how cannabis could help, uh, or not help in that case, really does make me suspicious. There was uh, the reporter who did the story at CBS News. His Twitter account, Tony Ducapil is the man's name. Uh, he tweeted out after the report got uh, you know through social media, he tweeted out in response to it, I also asked DEA Chief Chuck Rosenberg if marijuana legalization had pushed the cartels toward mar- more heroin sales. His response, maybe. Is there a, a fear here that if we took marijuana away from the cartels, so now they're responding by upping the production of heroin? Well, they sure as fuck ain't growing coffee. <laughs> yeah, I guess not. <laughs> I mean, if they're going to cut out, you know, somebody's main source of uh, economic <laughs> good life, I can't imagine they wouldn't either turn to coca or opiates. And right now, opiates certainly seem to have a market. The uh, other concern here is how they're trying to tie the idea of this opiate epidemic as being uh, part and parcel with the uh, the problem of of uh, uh, the gateway drug. You know, marijuana is this gateway drug that's leading people to that. I have a, a clip here that I wanted to play, and we'll uh, get your take on this. This was this was at that opiate uh, crisis. Uh, a key hearing that took place the other day, and this was the mother uh, talking to President Trump, Governor Christie, and Attorney General Sessions. Um, unfortunately, my son uh, OD'd after having been clean for ten and a half months. OD'd on um, a drug that was laced with fentanyl, so which is getting worse and worse. I hear it, yes. getting just out of control. So Carlos started uh, smoking marijuana when he was 15 and a half years old. And for him, and he'd be the first to tell you this, it's absolutely for him a gateway drug. It led to heroin, cocaine, crystal meth. At 18, when he was a senior in high school, with months to graduate, he had a a, uh, crystal meth overdose. So how can we respond, you know, when a mother is is, is speaking like that uh, from the heart about her dead son and calls, you know, calls out the gateway drug theory? How do we respond without coming off as crass or insensitive? That's just it. So we have to begin with an acknowledgement that we're all absolutely, you know, despondent about her loss. Um, And we definitely are on the same page as far as wanting to prevent drug related harm. 
That said, generalizing from a single case about literally anything may not be very logical. For every kid who started at 15 and a half and ended up on heroin, I know a kid who started at 15 and a half and ended up going to college, paying taxes, and living a delightful life. So the fact that we don't get to weigh those cases as heavily as her case shows a logical error that is hard to explain, in part because public schools are so poorly funded. So (laughs) this really is part of a much bigger educational problem, and I do feel like, as heartfelt as all that stuff sounds, it really doesn't hold up if you think about, would I generalize about a single case to anything? And that may be our way to finally get inside people's heads about this. One last bit on the opiate crisis here. Uh, We've been touting the stats recently, the studies, the surveys that have shown fewer opiate overdose, fewer fewer deaths, fewer prescriptions in the states with medical marijuana access. But now comes across my desk the study that says women with opioid addiction who use cannabis uh, will do worse in methadone treatment. This seems pretty complex. I wanted to get your take on it. Yeah, and unfortunately, what we're really seeing here is cannabis use may be a proxy for low socioeconomic status on these kinds of things. So I'm not crystal clear uh, if they covaried these things out correctly, and I'm quite sure these women weren't randomly assigned to use cannabis. So I'm afraid what they're finding here is that a subset of women who happen to be poor and using cannabis are probably driving this effect to make it look like they're less likely to do well in the in the opiate uh, methadone-based treatment programs. Hmm. Interesting. All right, let's uh, shift gears now from the look at the opiate epidemic to the use of medical cannabis to help our veterans who are suffering from PTSD. We've covered the story of Dr. Sue Sisley going through the trials and tribulations along with uh, Rick Doblin, the folks at MAPS, to be able to get the first FDA-approved study of whole plant cannabis for veterans with PTSD. The news we get today, some sad news. Johns Hopkins uh, school was part of this test and now they've dropped out. And I was wondering if you could tell us any more about that and what this may do to hamper or delay the, uh, the testing. I mean, the sad part is every university relies heavily on federal funds and they're all peeing in their pants right now wondering what do they have to do in order to hang on to that cash. And right now, Hopkins is trying to play it safe in hopes of not infuriating the National Institute of Health and basically the whole Trump administration so they can hang on to what are literally millions of dollars that have been funding their research for the last few decades. And I understand the playing it safe, but I had really hoped they would take a stand here because this has already been approved by the ethics boards. The funding is not federal funding. There's uh, independence as far as these labs are concerned when it comes to doing this. And the empirical support is as close as it could be without being definitive proof. We've got tons of really outrageous uh, self-report data that just suggests that, you know, without this plant, a lot of these guys would have committed suicide by now. And compelling work from my lab and labs all around the country saying, look, the key symptoms that are problematic for PTSD definitely respond well to specific strains of cannabis. So it it just breaks my heart 
And the fact that it's really all about the cash makes me extra disappointed. So with uh, Hopkins out, uh, there were the ones on the East Coast, like Baltimore, I think it was. Uh, this just leaves uh, Arizona school. Is that correct? There was going to be some work at University of Pennsylvania. Hmm. And uh, basically the guy who was on that faculty, I'm understanding that he's you know experiencing a lot of frustration with trying to get this kind of work done and they end up working for you know some california or or a cannabis company instead mm-hmm. to you know try to do the sort of thing he wants to do and and make it do some living wow all right now also with respect to that story of dr sisley and the ptsd study she had complained that the cannabis she was receiving from the university of mississippi dr el soli's pot farm there uh was substandard not high enough thc was laden with all sorts of gunk and nasty stuff that they didn't want to give to the veterans and now there's been a response an op-ed that was published uh, that says the criticism of the university of mississippi marijuana's quality was unfair um, I've seen it, Dr. Mitch. What do you think? <laughs> I mean, if, if Urban's is any indicator, it is not anywhere near as good as the cheapest trash uh, I've seen in Washington State. So I really don't know what he's saying about these 27 varieties. And you'll note that nowhere in that op-ed does he say, by the way, here's our percent THC. Because last I heard, they had an 8% strain, and they were acting like it was God's gift to cannabis, <laughs> when I really doubt there's a dispensary in town that is uh, selling anything as low as 8%. Well, the 8%, wasn't that uh, my father's Woodstock weed that Kevin Sabet's always telling me about? <laughs> my goodness all right a uh, final bit of science here but before we close things up I want to remind everyone that if you want to get your questions directly to dr mitch uh, you can do so through email by emailing 420 research at gmail.com 420 research at gmail.com this last story interesting for us science nerds that uh, the scientists have cracked the code, the genetic code of terpenes in the cannabis plant. I'm just wondering, aside from this being cool from a nerd perspective, what does this mean for consumers? Are we going to get uh, more standardization, maybe get away from strain names and such? It wouldn't surprise me if we also have some pretty good indication uh, ahead of time of whether this is going to be a laughing strain, a pain strain, a sedating strain, a stimulating strain, simply because we'll know, you know, is it linalol, is it lemonine? Uh, we'll at least have a good guess for how's it going to smell and how's it going to taste. Well, that's good news. I, I, one of the considerations I've always had is that, uh, you know, when I travel the country, if I uh, stop into a Subway sandwich shop, I know what I can get. It's generally the same ingredients, but from state to state when you're shopping for marijuana, it's different from state to state, different even from strain to strain. So anything that might standardize that, I think, is good for the consumer. Well, Dr. Mitch is the host of Burning Issues on CannabisRadio.com. Check out the podcast every week and uh, fill up your mind with more cannabis science. We appreciate you joining us, Dr. Mitch, and we'll talk to you again. Sure thing. All right, folks, stay tuned. When we come back, we've got an exclusive discussion that happened earlier this afternoon with investigative journalist Angela Baca, who uh, revealed to me some very interesting things about Mormon marijuana smuggling. That's right. There's three words you don't expect to go next to each other. Kind of like President Donald Trump.
This is the Russ Belleville Show on CannabisRadio.com. The Russ Belleville Show is proudly sponsored by the Marijuana Business Association. The MJBA, called by NBC News the Cannabis Chamber of Commerce, is the fastest-growing business association in the fastest-growing industry in America. I've been working with the MJBA for years, and I personally invite you to join the MJBA. MJBA also publishes the popular MJ Headline News on Facebook and the MJNewsNetwork.com and Marijuana Channel 1 on YouTube. Visit MJBA.net for more details. You're not high. You're listening to the Russ Belleville Show. Marijuana kills people on the highways. Traffic deaths in Colorado have increased dramatically. All right. Maybe you're high, too. Activism begins with ACT. The Rush Belleville Show features the stories of hardworking grassroots activists working for an end to prohibition in today's activist agenda. Today in the activist agenda, I had the opportunity to sit down with investigative journalist Angela Baca. She came by Delta 9 Studios to interview me regarding the 2015 Ohio Issue 3 debacle. She's working on a story for that. And as we were talking, she uh, discussed a lot of our background and the fact that, you know, I'm from Idaho and she spent a lot of time in Utah. And from there, we got into a discussion about medical marijuana in Utah and how it was making uh, remarkable strides in such a short period of time. I was originally baptized Mormon. I have a lot of Mormon family, so... My background, I kind of understood why Mormons were kind of taking to medical marijuana more than you might expect other conservative religious people to. Here's some of our discussion from this afternoon. Warning. It's taken on this show are larger than they appear. Do not try this at home. These people are professionals. (coughs) Or at least they pay me to say that. That sucks. I hate Yeah. <laughs> A public service message from the Russ Belleville Show. So we're here with uh, journalist Angela Baca. And uh, give us some of the outlets you're writing for now, because I was going to do an intro, but I don't remember exactly which one you're... I had been doing some book editing projects mostly for like the last year. I worked on two different books. Um, so I've been very sparsely freelancing. And right now I'm just working on investigative pieces. All so right. Long, so Well, you're one of my favorite writers. And I'm glad you stopped by today because we were just discussing. We are just hanging out here discussing our backgrounds and some of the uh, activism that we've covered. And we got around to the state of Utah. Which, uh, you know, I grew up in Idaho and I was a baptized Mormon and it's kind of interesting to me how quickly Utah has been moving on the issue of medical marijuana. They're the first state to pass a cannabidiol law in, in March of 2014 and then right after that, boom, all these other southern states and midwestern states are passing cannabidiol laws and I just... We got to discussing that and, and, and Angela was telling me here uh, about how it has really blossomed in Utah on an underground level, kind of something that was uh, happening throughout the Mormon church. And give us a little bit of, about that. What, what is the, uh, the genesis of this revolution of marijuana in Utah? Well, I guess part of it is that I've always been very out of the closet with my own use, and I really have made a point of talking about it with strangers everywhere I go. 
Yeah. Um, and you know, especially, you know, because you travel a lot, when you're on an airplane, people always end up asking you, like, what you do, and why you're <laughs> on the plane, why you're going to this place, and so sometimes I just decide to be bold and go right for it, like, hey, I'm going to Missouri to write an investigative piece about a marijuana bill, or Utah to do it, right? And I've had really interesting conversations with people, because I found that most people um, actually want to talk about marijuana, but they haven't really had somebody who will talk about it with them. Yeah. So when they get the opportunity to sit with someone like me, they just will fire off questions, and I'll sit there and answer them. Um, the other reason I feel like I'm kind of a good ambassador is that I'm clean cut and I have Crohn's disease, which is a really serious illness, and it's led to me losing a third of my colon at this point. Mm. And when I bring that up, nobody wants to argue with me about the merits of marijuana. Sure. Um, so when I was living in Utah, which I did for a period while my husband was getting his grad degree, I just kind of made a point of talking about it really loud everywhere I went, or talking about it with people in public, and I basically found that everybody else supported it. And so when I got involved with activist networks there, it was an easy thing to move forward because I already knew that everybody else wanted this. They just needed to know that everybody else wanted it. This kind of thing where people are afraid to mention it, but once they do, they find everybody else is pretty much on the same page? That's happened everywhere I've gone to. Every time I've gone to a conservative state in general, I've always had this same kind of bold talk about marijuana. Um, because I am the perfect person for who's going to go after me. Like I said, right. like who, I, I'm a serious case here. Um, and I've just been so bold about talking about it that I've found that everybody else is like that. And I feel like we kind of have created some other networks in other states when I visited, um, and when I say we, I'm talking about Ed because I, I traveled with Ed Rosenthal to Missouri to do some activist work yeah. a couple times. Um, I found that we have actually brought people together who didn't realize that the other people in the room were like them, even though they already knew each other. And so talking about it has brought people out of the woodworks. Yeah, there's uh, an interesting phenomenon. I remember back in in 2007, uh, Minnesota was moving forward on medical marijuana at the time, and they did a poll. and They asked people, you know, do you support medical marijuana? And they found that like three out of four did. But then they asked them, do you think your neighbor supports medical marijuana? And they said about three out of four didn't. So it is that that culture of fear that people are afraid to mention what they feel. But once they get together, they realize that they all are on the same page on this. And and you were telling me about how this is uh, happening through the Mormon church as well. Not at an official level in any way, but that the people themselves within the church are, are trying to help each other through that Mormon welfare network. Right, and you and I were talking about that because anybody who's familiar with the Mormon religion and church understands that um, everything kind of is centered around the ward, really. And in your neighborhood, you have like your local ward, which is your church, and you go there every Sunday, and you know all of your neighbors, and you guys all help each other, you see each other regularly throughout the week because of assigned jobs in the community. So there's already this, this network where people are talking to each other and seeing each other and knowing their neighbors and helping their neighbors. So as medical marijuana has kind of grown on the internet or on TV, they've all seen the same things that we see, and they've had a demand for it as well. So there's been kind of a smuggling network called the Mormon Carpool um, <laughs> that goes from Los Angeles to Salt Lake. Where Jello optional. Right, where <laughs> moms, of, like the parents of sick children, are smuggling weed from stop to stop. Like one of them takes it from this leg to this leg to make sure that the weed gets to the kids who need it because it's so much safer and better for them. So there's already these crazy underground networks and it's very, very quiet. And on the down low, of course, because they don't want to lose their children, um, where they're smuggling the weed around. They just didn't realize everybody else around them was in favor either until stuff started taking off. Wow. So So what's the, 
prognosis then? Because I know Utah has been talking about expanding this. Wasn't there a recent uh, expansion? Well, here's, here's the big situation with it, um, and I see this happening in a lot of states. Um, legislators understand that the public are in demand of this for all uses, industrial hemp, legalization, medical. The public understands this, and legislators know that, but it's about controlling it. Senator Madsen, who was running the medical marijuana bill in Utah, was a patient himself. And he understood this from a patient's point of view. And so he refused to give up access to raw bud. He said, fine, you guys can ban home grow if you're going to be conservative like that. You can do all these other crazy controlling things that I don't agree with. But from my understanding, the best way for patients is to have access to lots of different like, varieties of raw bud. And we can ban smoking, that's fine. They can take it home and vaporize it. But they need access to that. And that was why he continued to be voted down, was that that flower access was there. Mm-hmm. Um, so what it's about in Utah, at the end, they every time they brought up an argument about it, we countered it so hard, brought in the right expert, beat them down on it, or brought in a very sad story sure. to put it in front of them. And we were winning. And all they had against us was the reefer addicted rabbits, which was, <laughs> you know... <laughs> Which that is, was that was the famous case where uh, was it the the one of the DEA? Yeah, so we were sitting in a hearing um, when it was going through committee before it went to the Senate, um, and they brought in the DEA's witness against our case for medical marijuana, and he said that there were um, marijuana grows that they had purged in the hills of Utah. Um, where they saw rabbits who had been eating the weed and they were just so high they wouldn't run away. And like, that was the best they could do to counter this marijuana bill was the, the, the stoned rabbits. <laughs> Stone rabbits. So um, our web guy, Jared, and I decided to take that and put it through some of our underground networks and I passed it to a mutual friend of ours who is really popular with Leap. We passed it on to... Um, Washington, uh, the Washington Post. And uh-huh. so they posted the big long article with the quotes of it about the reefer addicted rabbits, and then that traveled all over the world. Which yes, was it did. Really fun, and why we kind of got attention in Utah, and then we started pumping out the Mormon stories. So. Wow. And, and you were also telling me about the, uh, the woman who helped to shepherd this bill through the Utah legislature and how she did such a fantastic job on this. There are two women, really. Okay. Um, it was Tennille Farr and Christine Stenquist. Um, Christine Stenquist was someone who had been working with religious um, lobbying organizations in the area, had a brain tumor and fibromyalgia, and had been in bed for 20 years because she was so sick and had gotten out of bed and started weaning off medications because she was using cannabis illegally and she wanted to promote it. Um, the other woman was Tenille Farr, and Tenille Farr um, was a Mormon woman uh, who was a housewife in Spanish Fork, Utah, had five children. When she was pregnant with her fifth, she was diagnosed with lymphoma. And a friend of hers, through this Mormon network we were talking about, suggested that she go spend some time in Colorado and California and juice cannabis and take cannabis oil. She delivered a healthy baby and went home. As soon as she went home, she stopped using it. Her cancer was not yet in remission, and she didn't want to break the law because she was LDS. And so that was her point up there. She was at the Capitol every day with a six-week-old baby. She was nursing in meetings with the drafters. Like, she Mm. was there every day and these two women were pouring their guts out to some of these legislators and crying and telling them these stories and they understood it and they kept changing their reasons for why they were going to vote no which I thought was pretty fucked up but mm. you know so uh, their status now they're still just cannabidiol oil at this plate at this time and the CBD bill as I understand is sunset by now it was passed in 2014 or went into effect in 2014 and was supposed to sunset in the summer of 2016 and they failed to pass something to replace that mm. so I don't even know that CBD is still legal they may or may not have done something to cover the people who are using it already 
I do know there's already Epidiolex trials going on at the University of Utah, though, so that kind of covers a lot of the people who had wanted that bill there. Um, Senator Madsen retired from the Utah State Senate and is doing his own private business now. He didn't... He knew he was going to retire this year anyway because he needed to take care of his chronic pain problems and he just didn't want to be in this legislature forever. Um, He tried the bill twice. He refused to give up flour. Of course, it never passed, despite how big it got and how much support kept coming out for it. Um, The groups that are there now are trying to do a citizen's initiative. I don't know how far it's moving at this point, but there's no legislature later in the Utah legislature right now who's willing to really champion it. Mm. And I don't think anyone ran anything this year. And people are trying really hard for that voter initiative, but it's a hard thing to do in Utah because you need a certain percentage of every county. Right. And Utah's 90-some percent of the population is in two or three counties right around the Salt Lake area. But there's these counties in the far reaches of the state where 10 people live. And right. You'd have to somehow get them to sign something, too. Yeah. it's uh, They do this in a lot of the initiative states to... Uh, uh, force a more geographic distribution so that you can't. It, it, same thing in Idaho, you know. It just you makes get, it more difficult, though, to pass things. Right, and and it and it yeah also have to question why is that even necessary? It, shouldn't a majority matter regardless of where they're concentrated? <laughs> that, well, that's, no, that's also an argument against the electoral college. Well, there so, we go. Like, that's, that's another thing we ought to be getting rid of. Well, as a native Californian, yes, I agree. We should get rid of the electoral college now. <laughs> Yeah, I, I what was the, uh, the the Trump people were saying? You know, uh, if you take California out, uh, Trump won, a, won won by a landslide. And so, if you take California out, this country is no longer great. So there we go. <laughs> there you go. Hey, if yeah, if you disregard twelve percent of the voters, sure, all sorts of things change. Well, uh, I thank the you. Sixth largest economy in the world. Sixth. Yeah. That's right. And thanks to uh, Britain brexiting, actually mm-hmm. raised us up a couple a couple oh, notches. Lovely. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Well, Angela, it's been great having you here and discussing what's going on here in Utah. I sure hope that this uh, this Mormon network of people that are so involved with the medical side of things can help uh, make that come to electoral fruition through this uh, through through a medical marijuana amendment, a medical marijuana initiative. I don't know who to honestly. The only way they're going to get something passed in medical in Utah, if it's going to happen before something happens federally is if the people get serious about organizing a vote out of these legislators who have been the stalwarts against it. Because we all know their motivations. The main ones were a pharmacist and a doctor. Mm -hmm. Um, It's pretty clear why some of these people are opposing the law and people need to get organized and throw them out. It's a small enough state that it doesn't take that much effort. And I think people need to understand that when you're in a small state, you have that power in a way people in California or New York don't. Right. So... Yeah, never underestimate the power of a group of Mormon women to change the world. (laughs) (laughs) That is the truth. Thanks so much, Angela, and uh, good luck on all of the investigative uh, pieces that you're working on. Angela Baca stopped by earlier today at Delta 9 Studios. Great time speaking with her. She's one of my favorite writers out there. You can look for her writing online. It's Angela Baca, B-A-C-C-A. And uh, we'll let you know what she finds out on that Ohio investigation that she's putting together. Sounds interesting to me. Well, folks, that's all the time we got for the podcast. And a quick announcement that there will be some changes coming to this podcast. Uh, Namely, that... uh, It won't exist anymore after the end of this month. But don't panic. I'm just starting a brand new podcast. That's all. It won't be called the Russ Belville Show anymore. It will be the Marijuana Agenda with Russ Belville. Check it out at MJAgenda.com, at MJAgenda Show on Twitter. 
MJ Agenda on Facebook. We're getting it all put up there this month, so watch for that. And until next time, take care of each other, tokers. This is the Russ Belleville Show. The Russ Belleville Show is blogging and podcasting daily at RadicalRuss.com. You're going, you're giant, you're rolling, you're smoking. You take a scene, you're